We are continuing our exposition through Exodus and find ourselves still at Sinai, and we will be here for many, many more weeks. This is, uh, Israel doesn't leave. That's not a joke about how slow we go through the Bible. That's literally like Israel does not leave Sinai in Exodus, so they will be here for a while, and uh, although it is true, sometimes we go slower through the books, but we're in Exodus chapter 23 and Exodus chapter 24 today, and what we have here before us today is some of what is maybe described as the most um, vehemently argued things in the church. Think about what do people argue about in the church? You know, what do they pick on? You know, maybe it's the church building or the lighting or lack of lighting or um, the seating or lack of kids' nursery or anything like that. Or In my experience, and some of you might second this, some of you might not, the biggest wars in the church are over worship and what exactly worship is or should look like. And songs... Smoke machines, lighting, uh, physical displays of, of expression are usually the epicenter for what makes a church a good church or why someone will go to a church and not another church. But it all comes down to worship. And this isn't wrong because God is serious about worship. From 24 on, Exodus is about worship. And... Uh, if I was a greater man, I might be able to cover chapter 24 to 40 in one sermon, but that's highly unlikely, but it's about worship. What does God want in his church's worship? Now think about what you might typically ask yourself on why you choose one church over another and see if it aligns with God's reasons for picking a church over another church. What we have in this section today is a promise of the land Israel will receive, the land of Canaan, and then a covenant confirming all the laws and promises that are going to fall upon Israel should they be obedient. And this section is a... I, I wrestled with how to break this down probably seven times during the week. I thought, maybe I'll just do a sermon on the end of 23. And then I thought, oh, I'll lump it in with 24. But I, I bring this in together because we have this picture of a promise and how to worship. And if you remember last week, what did we cover? We covered three chapters of law, right? A lot of laws. And we might think they're strange laws, but they're about how to live as one's a disciple of the Lord, as a follower of Yahweh. Today we're going to look at worship. And what is the desired pattern for worship? Is there a pattern? Can we just do whatever we want, however we want, we want it? 24 will show us there is a heavenly pattern 
in Hebrews 8, 5, the author says, God showed Moses on the mountain a pattern by which he needed to do this stuff on earth, the altar, the temple, the tabernacle, the laver, the, the bread, all of that stuff. The point is, from this sermon on until the end of the book, and we might break this down into heavenly worship parts one to 15, but there's a heavenly pattern of worship that needs to be duplicated on earth. Otherwise, it's false worship. Now, we could go through some uh, passages in the Bible about what happens when people worship God wrongly. There's a couple names in chapter 24, Nadab and Abihu, who were told the right way, did their own way, and then they died. We have kings like Saul or Uzziah who think they can just gallivant around the temple doing whatever they want to do, and they're stricken with leprosy or the kingdom is taken from them. All this is to say, God takes worship seriously. It doesn't mean worship is dour and somber and just like a gray cloud. No, the right kind of pattern of worship is a soul-enlivening, heart-warming thing. So we're going to look at the heavenly pattern of worship today. First, we're going to get into this promise of the land of Canaan. Please follow along as I read in 23:20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, ye shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but ye shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your, in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve other gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay, so this is the promised land given. In, no, did, 
to set the scene still, Moses is on the top of Sinai alone, and God is giving him these words. So if you go back to chapter 20, verse 21, it says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. From that verse there to 24.1, Moses is alone on Sinai and God has given him all these precepts, rules, and judgments, and laws. But he closes the, the law with a promise. He closes this law with a promise. And this is, as we called last time, the book of the covenant. Okay, the book of the covenant from 2022 to the end of 23 is the book of the covenant. Now, what does God say about this promised land? There are just three things I want to point out in pretty rapid succession here. One, God will send his angel to guard and guide Israel to the promised land and also blot out all the current enemies occupied there. Okay, so he's not bringing them into a land that's just wilderness. There's already grapevines, there's already houses, there's already pasture lands. It's an occupied land. And he's going to bring him in there. But he will send his angel to guard and guide Israel all along the way. So in verses 20, you have there, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to guide you or bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, this angel is described as an angel that has Yahweh's name in him. Just for the sake of succinctness, this is the angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, who is God in angelic, majestic form that will guide his people all the way to the promised land. And this angel's work is to guard Israel, to guide them, and to drive out the enemies, okay? Secondly, Israel's expected obedience to this angel. They are expected to obey this angel because this angel is God himself. But along with the obedience that goes with this obeying this angel, blessings come along with it. So look with me in verses 22 to 26. God says, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, so clearly Yahweh is speaking through him, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That should ring a bell to us, not the least of which the Israelites. We have when God told Abraham that he was going to make a covenant with him, he was going to bless him, Abraham's seed was going to be a blessing to the nations and kings will, and nations will come from Abraham. What are we told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3? That those who curse you, I will curse. And those who bless you, I will bless. And that same principle here applies God will be an enemy to the enemies of Israel and an adversary to their adversaries. 
Also, obedience to this angel will mean they need to destroy pagan worship. So we see the, the implementation of chapter, of, excuse me, of commandments one, two, three, and four, really. That true worship of Yahweh is not along other gods. It is exclusive. Worship of Yahweh is exclusive. And so in verse 24, don't bow down to the other gods. Don't do as they do, the nations. Utterly overthrow them. Break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God. And, and listen to this obedience and blessings. He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. And then listen to this. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. The obedience to this angel, to God, this is like new heaven, new earth kind of language. That no one's ever going to miscarry again. There aren't going to be any women who we have seen that are notable women in the Old Testament, which are barren. That won't happen again. No barren women. And I will fulfill the number of your days. The, the allotment of days that you have in store for you, I will make sure comes to pass. I will take sickness away from you. You can almost read within the white places there, there will be no crying, no death, no sorrow, nor anything anymore. Almost. It's not that, but it's close to it. So Israel is expected to obey. Israel will have this angel guide them and guard them. And then we have a description of the promise. A land that is devoid of enemies and occupants and so large that they can't seize control of it immediately, but they'll have to do it over time. So in, in 20, it is called a place that is prepared. In 31, we are given the geographical boundary, the border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness, which would be Mediterranean Sea, from the wilderness all the way up to the Euphrates River. So this, that strip of land, I will give the inhabitants of, your, into your, of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out. But even God is... Knowing Israel, knowing how weak and feeble they are, he says, little by little, I will drive them out. I won't do it all in one go, because if I did that, wild beasts are going to come in, there's going to be a spring bloom of all sorts of critters, and it's just going to be a snare for you. But he will send terror and hornets, which is just another kind of hearkening back to the plague. Like God is still powerfully delivering his people. He'll send his terror and hornets before these nations and will drive them out. And of course, we have the record of that in later books in the Old Testament, Joshua. But here it is. The promise is a land that you do not have claim to, that you do not really earn that's not even yours. 
I'm going to, God says, take the armies, the people out of it, and I'm going to put you in there. And they're not going to be homes that you've built or pastures you prepared or vines or land that you actually cultivated. You're going to inherit a prepared place for you. This is not just a history lesson. This is a parallel to your and my inheritance of the new heavens and new earth. There's a couple parallels just to close this section up with. I think are really interesting. And I wonder if it was on our Lord's mind when he was telling his disciples in the upper room before he went to the cross. Here, we're told, he's going to send his angels to, to be with his people, to guard his people, to guide his people, to protect his people. And he's taking them to a place that has been prepared for them. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The Lord is reminding his disciples there is a customized, prepared home for his people. And just like Yahweh is sending his angel to go with them, later in that same chapter, Jesus says, and I will send the helper and he will be with you and he will guide you and he will lead you in all righteousness and teach you. Yes, we are not Israel here, but we have a very clear truth that our promised future inheritance comes to us by way of God's providential gifting and his accompanying of his people to get us there. He accompanies his people to get you where he has prepared you to be. So that is the promised land. Now into chapter 24. Before we get into the details of 24, and you will have here, I'll probably most of your Bibles say a covenant confirmed or a covenant ratified or established. This is really the close of the ceremony that began in chapter 19. So remember chapter 19? This is the thunderous, awesome scene where Yahweh, we can only say descends in somewhat of a way, he appears on Sinai, wrapped in smoke and fire. I mean, this is the desert. This isn't lush, you know, green forests. This is supernatural fire. Like, dust is on fire. <laughs> this isn't like, there isn't grass in the wilderness. So he's on Sinai, and this huge scene is happening. God calls his people up to worship. He gives them the Ten Commandments, the law. He gives them more laws and statutes, and the people say, What? We don't want any of that. We don't want it. We're terrified. Moses, you go up there. Okay, and, and that scene carries over into this scene because it's all one scene. But this, this is where the covenant, 
that we're told about in 19, 3, and 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will... You shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's, he's, he's getting ready to establish, to ratify this covenant, and he does that here in, verse, in chapter 24. But before we get into the details, I, I have to say this. This is why coming to church is truly amazing. This scene at Sinai is Israel's first corporate worship service, okay? It is Israel's first corporate worship service. There were many other times in Exodus, uh, recorded more actually in, in Genesis, where people call upon the name of the Lord and they worship the Lord. I'm not saying God wasn't worshiped prior to this, but this is the establishing and the codifying of a worship service for his true people. But what is happening at this worship service? God is establishing a covenant. So worship and covenant. He's calling his people to worship and he's bounding his people together with a covenant. So the first worship service for Israel is a covenant ratification ceremony, okay? He's not just calling them up to say, hey, sing some songs and do some things. No, I'm gonna bind myself, the eternal God, to you, and we're gonna go through this ceremony together so that you will always be mine and I will always be yours, okay? There are elements here that we have in our worship service. There's a call to worship. There's a reading of the scripture. There is a remembrance of a sacrifice. There is a holy covenantal meal. Why am I bringing this up? All worship services in the Old Testament, going from the Old Testament into the New Testament, build themselves upon this formula. That when God calls his people to worship, he is bringing them in mind with a covenant meal. To put it one way, this is the first covenant ratification ceremony all subsequent calls to worship and Sabbath days are covenant renewal ceremonies. You'll see this in 2 Chronicles 5 through 7. You'll even see the same pattern in the book of Revelation. When God calls his people to worship, he wants certain things to happen. This is why we can't just flippantly do anything we want and worship. God is renewing for us today the covenant he made with his people then. So what does it mean to go to church? I want to come to church. I want to sing some songs. I want to see some people I like. Maybe some people I want to stay away from. No, 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 no. When God calls his people to worship, 
He is reminding his people about his covenant love for them. You'll see in Genesis, you know, God will make a promise to Abraham and he'll, he'll spell out that promise, you know. There's going to be a land for you. Your seed is going to be a blessing. You're, you're, a nation's going to come from you. And what happens when Isaac comes along? Actually, forget Isaac for a second. What happens years later in Abraham's life? Yahweh says, remember that covenant? Let me remind you and put afresh to you the covenant I told you about. I'm going to renew that promise to you now again here. I'm going to renew it again now. I'm going to renew it again now. Isaac comes along, who was a miracle birth. God gives the same covenant promise to him. He renews it to them. He renews it to Jacob. He renews it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's establishing the same pattern. So when his people come together, God is speaking to his covenant people saying, I am still with you. I am still for you. Although you, like Israel, have transgressed my law to high heaven and back, nevertheless, my mercies are new to you every morning. So just broadly speaking, we have to keep that in mind. That when we come to church, we are coming, coming to a covenant renewal ceremony. Is the Lord really speaking through his word? And appointed ministers, however flawed they are, does he speak through his word? Does he hear your praises? Does he hear your prayers? Absolutely. And he is enthroned upon them. And he communicates again and again to you afresh his covenant commitment to you. Now, let's look at this heavenly pattern here in verse, in chapter 24. I will say something from the outset that some of you might not like. There is a liturgy involved in verse, in chapter 24. If the word liturgy smacks of a denomination or a tradition you do not care for, choose a different word. It's okay. Literally, liturgy just means order of worship. We all have it, however long, however short. It just means order of service, order of worship. Unfortunately, those words make us think of cold, dead religion. I'm just going through the motions. When in actuality, when God's liturgy is obeyed correctly, we are brought into sweeter fellowship with him and much more of awareness of our great sin, but his greater grace. Okay? So first, let's see this here. He calls his people to worship. Verse 1, chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, this is technically when Moses is still alone on the mountain, but to put it in perspective, he's telling Moses alone, and then Moses is to come down and grab these guys and go back up again. He says, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come up 
shall come near to worship Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. He is calling his people to worship. Come up to the Lord. Now he chooses Aaron, a priest, through whom the, the priesthood line will, will flow, Nadab and Abihu, his sons, and 70 other elders of Israel to represent all of Israel. Can, can the whole congregation get up on top of this mountain? Practically speaking, no, but also there is, a, there is an illusion here, and a very clear one, of the later priesthood that will be established. But come up to worship, but worship from afar. That is crucial. Come up to worship, but don't come too close. Have we seen that in earlier chapters? Yeah. Come up, but if you touch the mountain, you're a goner. Worship from afar. Only one mediator will be able to come closer. Only one mediator will be able to come closer. But as he calls them to worship, he really means so. And when the king summons his people, they better do it. This is the Lord summoning his people to worship him. And it has to be from afar because God has not stopped being holy and the people haven't stopped being sinners. Secondly, there is a reading of the law and a pledge of obedience to the law. There's a reading of the law and a pledge of obedience to the law. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Now, they already said that. I, I know in our Bible, we think, oh, days have passed. No. They arrive at Mount Sinai in chapter 19, crazy awesome scene happens. The next day is chapter 24, okay? They arrive at Sinai one day, and God tells them all these wonderful things, going to make you a nation, a kingdom of priests. And what do they say in that initial conversation? All, in verse 8 in chapter 19, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. How quick, how quick and foolish these Israelites are to pledge their obedience. God hadn't even told them what they needed to do. They're just like an excited kid on Christmas Day. Of, okay, I got to do whatever to get my presents? Sure, I'll go do whatever. Well, worship the Lord God and nine other commands along with dozens of other commands to do this perpetually, perfectly to gain this inheritance. But he reads the law. He told them the law. The, in verse 3 of chapter 24, all the words of Yahweh and rules are simply 21 to 23, right? The precepts, the judgments, all those laws there. And they read that. They go, okay, we won't boil a young lamb in its mother's milk. We'll kill sorceresses. We'll not let goring oxes go free. We'll do all that. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they hastily pledge their obedience to the law of God. 
This should lead to a confession that they're not able to do so. But it doesn't. Israel overestimates itself. The law is there reminded, the law is there read to remind them of what they should do, but cannot do. Can they obey all the law? No. No, they cannot. It shows them what they should do, but their inability to do it. Which brings us to our third point. He calls his people to worship. There's a reading of the law and a pledge of obedience. And then yet, despite the pledge of obedience and imperfection of obedience, there is access to God through sacrifice. So he calls his people to worship, reading of the law, and access to God through sacrifice, verses four to eight. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh, so he had read them, and now he writes them down so that Israel can have a copy so they can teach next generations. Verse four, he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. They even add on. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what in the world is happening in this messy, bloody worship service? Well, this, is, this, this section there in 4 to 8 is the real moment of ratification of the covenant. You might say, you know, when is the marriage ratified? Is it the saying of the I do, exchange of vows, the getting of the rings? Which, which moment is the covenant actually ratified, right? And we would say it happens in this moment of sacrifice. There's a bit of repetition here with Moses writing down the words and reading the law again, but this is to teach them that they need to pass on this law to next generations, and then he builds an altar. He builds an altar and 12 pillars according to the tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel are represented by the 12 pillars. The whole congregation can't be up there. And so he builds the 12 pillars to symbolize the entirety of the nation is coming under oath, under a vow, under a pledge of obedience. And on this altar, there is one, a burnt offering. And burnt offerings establish fellowship with God on the basis of atonement and symbolized Israel's commitment as a worshiping nation. So the burnt offering is establishing fellowship between sinful man, Israel, and holy God, Yahweh, on the basis of a sacrificial lamb, an atonement sacrifice. And there's also a peace offering. And peace offerings are 
offerings to show the reconciliation or the peace between sinful man and holy God. And then there is the blood. The blood. The blood on the altar is thrown on the altar to show God's one party in this covenant. Who are the parties involved in this covenant? Yahweh is one party. That's symbolized by the blood on, on Yahweh's altar. And then the other party is the people. But before we get to them, we have this, the book of the covenant read and the pledge of obedience. It's important in the order here. He, in verse six, he throws the blood against the altar. Then he reads of the book of the covenant again in verse seven. And then they commit themselves to it again. All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. After their pledge of obedience, Moses takes probably a hyssop branch and sprinkles everybody with blood. So there was blood in the basin, and some of that went on the altar, symbolizing Yahweh as a party in this covenant. The other half of the blood was thrown on the people, just, just, just a bloody mess. Why was blood applied to the people? The blood splattered on the people to, purify, to symbolize they are now distinct and consecrated and purified people. And it obligates them to keep the covenant under pain of death. So they may not have realized what they first signed up for. And we might say like, oh, sprinkled blood, I don't get it. When that blood hit their skin, they realized, oh snap, I am now in covenant with Yahweh. And if I do not obey every jot and tittle of this law, the blood is on me will be symbolizing my own death. So they signed up and swore with an oath to obey God or die. That is why I said earlier, their quick, sure, whatever Yahweh says we'll do, was foolish, way foolish. Just a, a quick tangent into our lives today. We see this. We see, you know, God calls his people to worship. We did that. We have a reading of law, reading of scripture. We believe we access God through the sacrifice of Christ. But do we pledge our obedience? If you're here in Sunday school, the answer was, Yes and no. Should we pledge our own obedience, and it was completely our own, our, on our own obedience, we would be smitten. Because we cannot fulfill the law. But we worship not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of the obedience of someone else, the Lord 
Jesus Christ, who obeys all the law, positively does that for us, and also bears our pain of death punishment, negatively applied. So God calls us people to worship. There's a reading of law, the reading of scripture. There's access to God through atonement, through sacrifice. It's the only way we can worship. Otherwise, we worship far off and scared. Or as kids say, a scared. <laughs> that is the only option. Unless there is a sacrifice by whom we come. And not only come, but Hebrews says, come boldly. The last thing is truly amazing. It is a covenant meal. Verse 9. After this bloody mess, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What is going on here? This is the covenant meal. This is the purpose of the covenant. What is the purpose in our salvation? What does the Bible hold out as that latter day wonderful scene that we are finally going to get to? The marriage feast of the Lamb. There's always a meal after a covenant in ancient Near East, in Israel's time there. But this covenant meal is unlike all other subsequent covenant meals. Here, they see the God of Israel. Okay, so Moses and Aaron go up to Sinai, the tippy top. They come back down, splatter the people with blood, read the law, sanctify them as God's people. And while they are down there, they're called back up, verse 9. And when they go up a second time, they see the God of Israel. And that's it. That's all the description. <laughs> Moses, can you elaborate a little bit? What was that like? Notice, there's not much. It says they see the God of Israel, but there isn't anything else about what they saw of God. Did they see God's essence in a way that Moses hadn't seen at the burning bush? Or that Moses is going to ask to see later on in 34? Did they see the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God? Who did they see? We aren't even told. We're only told about the surroundings. 
We're only told about the surroundings. It's kind of like the book of Revelation. There's the throne room of God, and you see a little bit of what, what God has described about. All you see is a lot of what's going on around it. As if you, you're not even allowed to peer in and see who God is, the best privilege you can have is seeing, oh, what's, what's going on around him? What is going on around him? There was under God's feet, as it were, verse 10, a pavement of sapphire stone. And almost inevitably, when we come to these kind of passages and there is a theophany, there's a, there's a vision of God, the Hebrew, the Greek, it always breaks down and it's like, wait, wait what? So various translations translate this in various ways. The ESV says a pavement of sapphire stone. Others say a pavement of lapis lazuli. Others just say a, a, a bluish pavement. I mean, it, the language falls short. And then it says, like the very heaven for clearness. So whatever they see of God under his feet is a pavement of sapphire stone, blue stone, but blue stone that is clear as the heavens itself. And I'm just wondering, they're on Sinai. The darkness has enveloped them, thunders, lightning, fire, lions and tigers, bears. And they look up, and I'm just wondering if they see like the real sky. You know, the, the regular normal blue sky that would be there. And God in the heavens. And of course, as one who dwells in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. They just see this awesome, amazing, transcendent God. And they just see what he's standing on. But the, but the sight is, is something. In verse 10, it says they saw the God of Israel. And then in verse 11, it says, again, they beheld him. And, and the two are different. The Hebrew word for saw in verse 10, is, it's a simple scene. Hey, I see a door. That's what it is. Behold, in verse 11, would more be like contemplating, meditating. So they see God and they they wonder. And they wonder while they eat and drink. They're eating and drinking with God. In chapter 18, you know, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to the Lord. We would say he got saved. And it says they ate bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is, the, this is the covenant meal, which is a benefit of the covenant being ratified. You come to Christ in order to dine with him, to be with him. You don't come to Christ for any other reason. You don't come to Christ to get justified. You don't come to Christ to get sanctified. You don't come to Christ to get heaven. You come to Christ to get Christ. Right? That's what we've been learning on Wednesday night. We don't want to separate the giver and the gifts. That inevitably leads to an idolatry of the gifts. 
We come to God to get God. <laughs> if someone were to say, oh, I want to get married one day so that I can have dinner ready at 5.30, I can have some kids, carry on the family name, someone keeps the house clean, or I get married one day so that my husband can go off work and I can be at home or live my dream, you got a screwed up reason for getting married. You get married to be with a person. You get saved to be with God. And here is the meal. It is the crescendo event of the covenant. Who do you see at the table when you take the table? On the table in a couple minutes. Who do you see? What do you think? Who are you beholding in that covenant meal? Just your Lord. This chapter concludes with verses 12 to 18. Lord calls Moses up again. In between 11 and 12, we just presume he had gone back down after eating and drinking. Verse 12 says, Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, name dropped there, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here, for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud, again, covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Just a couple quick words. We're going to return to that section next time. He goes up into Sinai again, and these verses contain the rest of the book of Exodus, okay? This trip, this final trip, well, it isn't the final, because uh, as you know, what's going on down below? Golden calf. False worship. False urgent. Here is the situation and how incredulous Moses must be. He's in heaven, literally. He's at the throne of God getting news about the, the laver and the altar and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, all these wonderful things which are pictures of Christ. And he comes down and he sees idolatry he sees this golden calf. He sees these people frolicking around, committing grave, grave sin. 
how many days prior did they just say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do? Faster than giving up on a New Year's resolution. These guys, they need mercy. Okay, so that's one thing. Moses is up there, and the rest of the book is, 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 uh, excuse me, Moses is up there and receiving basically the rest of the book of Exodus with a couple trips of disappointing interactions with Aaron. Also, you have God-pinned instruction. Who wrote the tablets of stone? When Moses goes back up there, God says, I have written them for their instruction. So God pinned these tablets, this law on the tablets of stone. We have, we have Joshua, and then we have this scene of this glory cloud. We often use the word Shekinah glory. And that, that basically comes from verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Shekinah is the Hebrew word for dwelt or abide. So when the glory of the Lord dwells on Sinai, it is a dwelling presence. It is a dwelling glory. It is an abiding glory. What do we see in John 1? That, that Jesus comes and he is glory as only of the begotten Son of God and he dwells with man. Jesus, the embodiment of the Shekinah glory. We have... Moses here, sitting with God, dwelling in glory with God. Now, we'll get into some of those details later as we unpack the rest of the book. I just want to end with these couple thoughts. What do you think of church? What do you think of church? What is going on in church? Why is this fool keep getting up and speaking? Why is he speaking for so long? Why does that guy read the Bible? Why do we sing the songs we do? Why do we go in the order that we do it? Why is there a call to worship? Why is there a benediction? Don and I don't imagine this up. There is a heavenly pattern given from God to Moses by which we should worship. God calls his people today to come and worship him so that he can renew the promises he's given his people in the past again and again and again. He established his covenant once, and now he wants to renew that covenant again and again and again with his people. All the elements of what we cover today, the call to worship, the reading of scripture, the access to God through sacrifice, and the covenant meal, all teach us the gospel, that God calls sinners to dwell with him, but they can't because he is holy and we are not. But a provision has been made, the sacrifice of Christ, which has given us access to God. And now that we are at peace with him, he speaks to us and we share a meal with him. That's why we go to church. And the only reason, to behold God. And I will confess, I have for years believed Sunday worship is a covenant renewal ceremony. 
Not until Wednesday of last week did I really finally get it through my thick skull and see it for the honor and the privilege for which it really is. God calls you so that he can say to you again, I have not left you, I haven't forsaken you, you are mine, I am yours. Dwell with me. So if we come to church to get something out of it, you know, to help us the next week or to do something, first and foremost, principally, the reason for coming to church is to behold God and to be told again, I have not forsaken you, though you have been disobedient. The reading of the law tells us our sin, oh, horrible, that's bad news. But the reading of the law also cho- shows us how Christ has forgiven us and lived that law in our place. Let's pray.